Well, first, instead. Huh, okay, sure. Why not? I tell you. <laughs> it's your podcast. Why my idea is the best idea. You're listening to This Should Work podcast session number six, a conversation with Sarah Margulis, educator, makerspace organizer, and uh, also my wife. Uh, in this session, we're going to talk a little bit about aligning maker-centered standards with 21st century learning standards in schools, how to create projects for young makers that will introduce them to the world of tinkering, and um, maybe a couple other things too. Thanks for listening to This Should Work. If you uh, are enjoying this podcast, uh, we've been around now for a little over a month and a half, then please share it out for everybody to find out about it on your favorite social media platforms. And subscribe, iTunes, Overcast, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and so on. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy podcast session number six of this should work all right so this is this should work session six with sarah marvelous educator steam camp person and my wife hi hi how are you <laughs> i'm okay i've been with you all day <laughs> okay so um you know, you do a lot of things that I'm really interested in and I think more people should know about. And that's why I wanted to talk with you because a lot of the maker folks out there um, in the land that I work in, uh, number one, don't know a lot about education and how education things work as, as far as it aligns with maker things. And and number two, don't know that, um, you know, that I'm, I'm I know somebody that knows all these things and um, that's primarily because uh, you know we try to prevent you know, cross-pollination of personal and, and uh, business but here we are so um, the way we start this off and you've kind of, like, kind of listened to some of these so you kind of know probably already is by talking about some personal projects that you might be working on so I wanted to ask you what you're doing right now that you're excited about that's not related to work, but is related to craft and making. Right now I'm making, it's September when we're recording this, so I'm working on making a Halloween decoration. My initial idea was to, I love Goodwill, so my initial idea was to take some broken thing or outdated Halloween signage and give it a new life, but I haven't found the best thing I found was a placemat. So now I am working on taking a blank canvas, literally, and trying to make it so it lights up when you walk by with some spooky LED lighting and Halloween art. So you're going to have a canvas like outside somewhere and people are going to walk by it and something's going to happen? That's the idea. Yeah, right now all <clears throat> the rage are those signs that go on your porch. So I feel like this fits that well enough, Yeah. but with some 
twist. Yeah, I've not heard of those signs before at all. I, I haven't. Like the ones your mom makes. The big oh, welcome sign. Sure, and you put those outside. Right, and then the ones Got that it. say your name on them. Okay. Right. <laughs> Nobody can see the looks you're giving me right now. Like I'm an idiot. Um, okay. So let's 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 stay. You know, one one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you like you look for a lot of used things. You don't like um, you don't you don't like buying new stuff that requires all sorts of you know industrial processes to create and 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 so on. And it sounds like you're integrating some of that practice into what you're doing with this project. And you mentioned it, you know, even though you're not actually practicing it here, you, you tried to. Why is that? What is it that drives your desire to, um, to do that? There are two factors. The first one is because I think we are all responsible for making sure the way we live is sustainable. And that's, I like to shop, so that's like my compromise. Um, to get something pre-loved and then love on it some more. But then also the second reason is that I am cheap. Sure. So um, you, you've kind of incorporated those into making things, um, you know, which is interesting. And I want to get to, you know, the stuff that you're working on with aligning with uh, 21st century learning standards or learning outcomes or whatever they're called. And, um, and Maker Center principles, and I want to talk about the STEAM camp and everything else, but I, I kind of want to dive into, um, you know, how, how that aligns with your interest in making, because, well, you, you know, I've been married to you for over a decade, and we've known each other for longer. I've been making maker spaces for about a decade now, and uh, you haven't really been involved with them until, you know, couple years ago maybe and so what was it that you saw with some of the things that you're doing upcycling and craft that began to align with maker things um or, or was it was there some some moment that clicked or something that you kind of fell into or how did that happen where those two worlds aligned because we'd we'd known we'd been married for for long enough that you know you'd had the opportunity to get involved before but something must have changed yeah, I think the allowances changed somehow, whether it was through conversations with you or just the way that the movement shifted. At first, I saw hacker spaces as tech-driven, particularly by young men who didn't, no offense, who didn't have much else to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came to the realization that all my sewing projects and crazy upcycling ideas really were just a way to hack or get around what the original intent was. And so then I convinced What does you, that mean? What Get around what the original intent was? Like, so one of my favorite upcycling projects has been to take old wool sweaters and upcycle them into diaper covers. And to do that, you felt them and lanolize them so they're waterproof and obviously sew them. Um, and so you're taking something that had an original purpose, but then disassembling it and putting it back together for what you want it to be. I made wool, wool mittens mm. last year. And then my, one of my favorite upcycles has been I took old curtains I found at Goodwill mm -hmm. 
and made some bean bags for our kids' rooms and some actually for the preschool that our daughter attends. And it was like $2 per beanbag chair. Mm -hmm. So the, the intent is the, the material was harvested or however you want to put that for some purpose or object and you saw it as um, not even as something else necessarily, but just as the material that it was and then, and then notice possibilities and how, what else you could do with that. Does that start with a project idea? And then you go looking for the material. Does that start with the material and then it aligns with the project idea? Or is it a little bit of both, somewhere in between? I think I'm usually driven by a project idea, but really it's a need. There's too much going on in my life right now to just have a project idea and actually do it. Um, our beanbag chairs in our house for the kids are filled with stuffed animals because those were overflowing. And like the woolly diaper covers I made were because um, our son was leaking out of his <laughs> night, nighttime diapers and they, yeah. they just keep the moisture in. So, yeah. so usually it's like a problem solving tactic that sure. I take too. I like, I mean, I like, I'm usually driven by project ideas in general, but that was more before I was a mom. I could just do whatever. I had more time. Hmm. And, and yet your, your, your ideas, your maker ideas and the things that you're building, you know, you, you hadn't really been aligning yourself with whatever this maker thing is for a long time. And yet when you did the projects that you chose, um, what the the projects that you chose that you identify as as you being a maker do align with you being mom so so that's interesting to me because before what was the difference it, it couldn't have just been you were you know you weren't a mom and then and then you were there was some difference before that changed yeah i think i don't know if two things happened but for sure i saw hacking as techie and i think the, what's wrong with that? What's the, what's the, what's the, um, what's, you, you, you said that twice now. What's yeah. the inhibition that that presents? Well, I don't believe I can say I'm not techie because I think anybody has the capacity to be um, okay. technologically. Yeah. Right. But um, what I saw happening in my world was, like I said, a lot of young men, um, who like to tinker with that kind of thing, and that at that time was not really my speed. I like to paint furniture, and so okay. I was really into quilting for a while. And so but those, before, but, <coughs> yeah, but those are more like, like when I was quilting, it was more like a kid, a kit project or instructions. Yeah. And it's just recently I feel like that I've started really making things my own, and giving myself the allowance to try and mess up and move on. So you mentioned maker culture changing, possibly being a reason for why you identify it. What does that mean? What change? What is? What about? What it? You know, it's almost as if nothing. As we're talking about these things, you're 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 identifying as you know nothing has necessarily changed with how you think about things, but how the the culture changed. Yeah, the broader view. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't really a cultural change. Maybe it was just my perspective. Mm -hmm. When I was helping plan Maker Fair, um, I knew I wanted artisans and crafters to be involved because they're makers 
I felt, I felt really strongly that they're makers just like everybody else. And so with that, I feel like that's really when I started to shift my thinking because I said, well, gosh, if I'm inviting all these other people to be here and calling them makers, then really, why am I not calling myself ah. one? So you're, and you're talking about Southland Mini Maker Fair there. Right. Um, and so you, what you're, you know, it, so it almost took um, purposefully getting involved and inviting other people into um, the fold that got you to realize that that you belonged. So, so it's it, it's it's as if you, you didn't feel like you belonged, and then for one reason or another, you had an insertion point, and that was organizing around community. And in doing so, you realized there was some connection between what you were doing and and what this group was doing. Has that been important? Has that been a significant? Is it useful to be a part of whatever this is, or is it just that you align with this because it's another thing to align with, but whether or not it exists doesn't really matter or affect you? I think it's helpful right now because makerspaces are becoming so in vogue in education, and by training, I'm a teacher, and I'm an instructional coach and a reading specialist. And so I really believe that that's my like calling or purpose in life. And so to see the two things that I, I don't know, spend most of my time doing, I guess, align so closely has been really exciting to me. So what is it about education? I mean, educa- you hear a lot of things about like experiential learning and you hear things about, you know, hands-on learning and and all these other sorts of things. And there's a lot of, you know, we talk about this all the time that there's a lot of junk, (laughs) junk things out there for people, from people who are trying to take advantage of that whole push. And uh, you see a lot of those same people, you know, using maker this or maker space as uh, the moniker to take advantage of that. So what is it that, um, that you see of value uh, in the whatever the maker th- this maker thing is um, that that does have relevance and w- you know where are people where you know because we've talked about this enough and I'm just trying to pretend like we haven't so that we can have some you know contextual conversation for people who I think need you know uh, this is useful information well, what's the difference between this stuff and all the other junk out there and wh- where do you identify the things that are useful and and uh, where, how do you separate the junk things? Yeah, so I want to do a call back to when Common Core first came out. and So what's Common Core? Common Core are national learning standards. Okay, and a learning standard is? Um, <laughs> I'm a, just, I, for, right, for right, right, me, right. Okay. <laughs> hopefully I'm not being like more tough on you than I am other people. A learning but standard. But what's a, you know, is, I... I don't think a lot of people know. I didn't know what these things necessarily okay. were. They're, they're not self-evident. Sure. A learning standard is the standard at which you expect students to learn, kind of like an objective. So by the okay. end of X, you expect okay. Y. So you have a, a class, and that class, um, the students need to come out of that class meeting certain standards. Is exactly. that how that works? Yeah, and they're, yeah, okay. and they're tested. And that's mandated top-down and with the goal of what increasing so common core came out with the hope of 
standardizing learning standards. So what was happening before is all the states had different standards. Got it. And also increasing the rigor. So making it okay. where kids who graduate from high school actually are ready for college. All right. So now that we've done that, moving on. So Common okay. Core so anyway, Common Core came Co- out. Common Core came out. And what happened was all these products that already existed on the market got this fancy new stamp in the corner that said Common Core aligned. Okay. Even though they weren't. So it's kind of like uh, everything is organic or green or, exactly. or whatever now. It's right. uh, it's all about it the may not, Yeah. It may not be true, but it makes you feel better that right. you're implementing it. Got it. Okay. So I'm kind of seeing the same thing happening with making and people are taking products or kits that used to be just stamp science sure. and now are stamping them steam. Is there a difference between science and steam though? Okay, that's an interesting question. No, but huh. steam is the new green. Okay. So but so that's not invalidating. That's not saying that that the if they said science on them before and then they said steam that they're not aligned. It's to say that the science stamp before may. Uh, what is it? What I, I don't know what you're saying actually. What's the? So people are just dressing things up differently to match what is in style right now. Okay. But the other the other thing that I saw often as an instructional coach is we create these artifices around student learning. So we try to create constructs and frame problems super nicely and easily because we're so short on time in the classroom that we're sure students will get it and we're sure they'll be successful that it becomes this artificial exercise that doesn't stand up to the actual learning standards that are in place or more importantly like the real world world that kids have to grow up to live in so are we talking about two separate things here we're talking about kits and then we're talking about instruction in the classroom correct but you you jump from one to the other right, so seamlessly that you, you felt like there there's a bridge between those because and i missed that bridge it's the art no, <laughs> the artificial construct yeah. that exists so so would a good teacher take anything and try to make it fit their students needs absolutely but when we take things and forgive my language, but like dummy them down or make them easier because it's easier for the teacher to teach it that <laughs> way. Forgive my language, dummy them down. Dummy it down. <laughs> Is that a bad thing to say? Well, when you're talking about... Things that are getting things easier. Things that should be getting smarter, getting dumber, sure. that's bad. Okay, got it. That's okay. not how a teacher talks. <laughs> you don't ever want to say I'm going to dummy it down. Okay, got it. Okay. So, yeah, so it's just this artificial construct. So what's really cool about making and what gets me jazzed is that it's not artificial at all. Like you give kids a real thing to make and then they actually have to figure it out Ah. in real life. Mm. So you were talking about artifices before. Yeah. You were talking about, uh, you know, I hear this a lot in, in the interviews I've done is the intangible, the intangible made... Uh, tangible kind of rips away the artifice is that kind of what you're I I don't want to put words in your mouth but is that what we're kind of moving toward talking about here is that making things and making things tangible um, the the artifice is torn down because you can't have an artifice like you know material pushes back I always say 
or or is that you know can you provide me some clarity on, on how those how to navigate this water here of what you're describing You're laughing. I don't know why you're laughing at me right now. I think you did put words in my mouth. Yeah. Well, so, that, that's perfect. So I want to know. I, I want to know where I went wrong. So, but, but maybe I'm wrong. So making. I mean, by the very nature of using your hands to make something, it's tactile, and they, uh -huh. the kids get their hands dirty. And one of my interests is why psychology, is because kids learn better with some. It's called concrete. Hmm. So, so developmentally, kids learn best when something's introduced. It, in a concrete way, meaning they can like touch it, feel it, whatever. Okay. And then you can move to a semi-concrete with representations and then finally move on to the abstraction. So, so one of my theories is that if we can teach kids learning standards rigorously while they're actually, they've got their hands on something and use language that can also deal with the abstraction later on, that kids will be find more success across broader contexts and content areas than they might otherwise. If we're teaching this artificial, you know, we were in a meeting yeah. and they said like, we go to the kids go to school and they teach science in the science room <clears throat> and math in the math room and language arts, you know, in that room. And 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 teachers do try to cross. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt because teachers work really hard to make sure their kids are learning as much as they possibly can. But the way the system is set up is so antiquated that makerspaces are this really cool way to get rid of those doors and those mm. separations and bring kids into the fold where they're touching something. And then you can talk about the implications in art or science or, or mathematics or whatever. Okay, so you use... Um, the subject you're, you're kind of synthesizing the subject matter and using making as an insertion point into the subject matter is that yes. right yeah yeah but so I want to go <laughs> back to because I think that some of the the products that are being introduced relating making and education the the problem with those is and I alluded it to it before but not in, an, in a nice way teachers have too much to do all of the time mm -hmm. so so then teachers, we are being handed this extra thing and they're saying like, hey, look, it's great, it's steam and you have to make things, which takes an awful lot of time for little kids to actually make right. something. And, and so, te I mean, I would imagine that teachers are just feeling like, seriously, we already have so much to do. So how can, how can this really address what kids need to know at the end of the day? You know, is there a separation between making and all the other content areas, or is there an authentic way to integrate those? And that's what my project has been. Hmm. Yeah, so I want to talk about your project in a second. You, you said two things in the last couple of minutes that I want to ask you about. And first is you said an authentic way, and you talk about authentic a lot. And I have a feeling that that means something that I don't know what it, what is, there, that there's some people who write about authentic something that I don't know about, or what's the, the whole... Where does the authentic? Well, I mean, it, so so to give you an example, right? It's the difference between saying, like Sally is having a lemonade stand and she has however many lemons, right? It's like this far removed, made up thing, versus when I was quilting or when I'm sewing or making something, and you actually have to measure and figure out 
and apply the mathematics. So maybe it's not so much authentic, but it's like an actual application of the skills Got it. and strategies that you want okay. to do. The second thing that I wanted to, to call back on before we go on to the, the work that you're doing is you mentioned um, that kids learn better when they're doing things. I'm paraphrasing here, but when they're hands-on, mm-hmm. right? Why? Why is that? Because I think this is the breakdown in a lot of our conversations when we talk about things is I'm more interested in, I don't believe you until you can tell me, like, if you can give me some philosophy or theory on why that is the case. Um, what? Why is it the case that hands-on uh, things are better ways of learning than, and, and also in juxtaposition to what? Are, are they superior in some way or what's the... What's the difference there? Sure. So I was just reading something today actually about how simulations that are well done have higher, um, perf- like students have higher performance afterwards. They understand the content and its implications more thoroughly. Um, so, so I think that's multi, I think there's a lot of folds in that. Um, okay. First, you know, Piaget, I think, was one of the first, maybe not, but one of the first people to look at the idea of having, um, you know, like a concrete representation and then the developmental stages of learning, right? So Piaget wrote about constructivism. Right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, right. So by by touching and feeling a a thing, a kid can explore. So this might be what you were saying before, explore its affordances and what Mm. it will do and how it looks and how it feels. So then later when they call upon that they they can abstract but at least it's based on something real. right so here we're talking about the symptom but i want to know i want to know if there's any theory on why that's the case on why hands-on is is a lends itself well to education yeah i don't i don't know if i know really but my guess would be um as a reading specialist and somebody who studied learning the more you point out your credentials on me now yeah right because <laughs> i'm making stuff up mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, the more no you're thinking the That's more good. senses are involved in a learning experience the stronger that mm. learning experience becomes so like if you have a, mm. so for example if you have a special ed student a special education student sure the the more modalities you can integrate into an exercise the better so when i taught reading if a student was having trouble reading you had them read it aloud because then they're not only reading it they're also hearing it hmm that's interesting i would actually um approach that from a completely different perspective uh in that i i don't view things as uh cognition and then cognition uh, and senses uh creating meaning in the world but rather everything or you know interacting around you it's it's just interesting to hear that kind of a approach to it um, because it's it's different than mine, but it arrives at the same conclusion. Um, so why don't we talk about uh, your work in aligning maker-centered standards, which is based off of some some of that. Um, what's that Harvard work called that it's based off of? I think it's. Oh goodness! You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to correct me if I'm wrong here. 
Harvard Project Zero? Yeah, okay. So the I, and I should have known that because I have a certification in it um, from Harvard. But um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, they you've got some work that aligns maker-centered learning standards from Project Zero with 21st century learning outcomes. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what both of those things are and then why this work, why you think this work is, is interesting. And I should, at this point, put a disclaimer out there that we co-own a company that in part, um, you know, posits this as a way to integrate authentically, if I'm going to use your language, um, maker learning. And it's the only thing that I've, you know, when you first showed me it, that I found interesting. And um, anyways, I need to put that disclaimer out there because I don't want to self-advertise without without, um, uh, being truthful. Anyways, so what can can you give me kind of the lay of the land of what both of those things are, how your work synthesizes those things, why that's interesting? Well, first, instead, huh, okay, I sure. Why tell not? You <laughs> it's your podcast. Why my idea is the best idea? Hmm. Um, because again, teachers have this problem, and they have too much to do in too little time. So instead of handing teachers more stuff to cram into their school day and their kids' brains. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to open it back up to what they're already doing, but just give them the language right. and the understanding of how they all coalesce and how to use that, how to work smarter, rather right. not harder, basically. So, and the rather than you're talking about is a lot of the other things that are out there that you know you and I kind of talk about all the time where people kind of lazily throw, slap some stuff together for their company and they try to sell it to a school as here's a curriculum that you can use, but the teachers are already overworked. So that's a challenge for them to, to incorporate into their stuff. Yeah. The other really interesting thing that I'm finding is there's tons out there for free. So if you're an educator and you're looking at building a makerspace, like there, there's just bazillions of resources that are very high quality that are already available for free so 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 beyond that right like use what you can get your hands on and is good for you and your kids and affordable and decrease that barrier to entry and then and then also on top of this you can layer the learning standards yeah it kind of embodies that maker mentality anyways of you know not buying a prepackaged solution to your problem but um you know tinkering with the system and figuring it out yourself right it really goes back to my thrift store finds because sure (laughs) sure it does why not you Mm -hmm. you use what you have in front of you why go buy something new got it you know okay so right so so talk to me about uh talk to everybody who's listening about the 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 maker-centered learning component um out of project zero and talk to me a little bit about the learning outcomes component as well. So I used the Harvard Project Zero information to learn more about the design process and systems thinking, which I didn't really know a whole lot about before. And that really got me thinking about similarities between the content areas 
Um, then I dove into the 21st century learning standards, which are meant to, you know, they focus on like communication and collaboration and problem solving. Um, and those are kind of mm, maybe like the soft skills that we don't address always academically, but are all maybe even more important to kids' success in the world. So I started looking at both of those things and how they intersected, and then that got me thinking about kind of questioning, like, how do all of the learning standards intersect, and where are there commonalities or, or themes developing? So then the research I did was to take, this sounds like a lot of fun, I know, to take hmm. all of the learning standards. How many are there? Um, I looked at... I didn't even look at all of them, but I looked at ISTE, which is tech standards. What does ISTE stand for? I don't know what I... Not everybody who's listening <laughs> knows what ISTE stands for. Don't look at me like I'm an idiot. International Society for Technology. Okay. Okay, so I looked at those. Um, one of the schools I was working with was interested in the art standards. So I looked at the visual arts section of their learning standards. Um, I looked at Common Core literacy and Common Core mathematics, but then I decided to focus on the mathematical practices, which are like things that mathematicians do. Um, they're not specific to what year a kid is in school, right? So they um, attend to accuracy and um, notice patterns and things like that. So they make use of structure. Um, I also looked at the 21st century learning standards and then what most STEAM learning or maker-centered learning is based on is NGSS, which are the next generation science standards. Um, but I primarily looked at the engineering section of, of those, although some concepts obviously really strongly correlate with making like so so you're you're taking a whole bunch of standards from a bunch of different places correct and you're aligning them with what so the first thing i did is i took them all and categorized them basically and then tried to pull out the patterns okay i thought was really exciting and everybody's eyes just kind of glaze over no but why is that exciting because what that allows you to do is say, if I have to teach my kids like eight things all year, here are the eight things that cross all content areas and are super helpful. Okay. Right. So from there, um, I used, to reference back to the Harvard project, so I used a design process to give, to, to provide a structure for this work. So instead of just saying, you know, like the art of questioning in a student's life is ultra important, but it's just this thing floating out in isolation by itself, the design process allowed me to pull it into something teachers already are used to um, or understanding or get being exposed to through engineering and give it a, a home. So it's more memorable, but then perhaps also more useful and then also easier to see where it fits within the teaching okay so so give uh give everybody who's listening kind of an understanding of what give an example of how that might be implemented in the classroom you know this crossover effect so like if you could give an example of how um you know something that somebody's teaching aligns with um you know these learning standards but then also 
um, is part of, of making, I think that would, would help um, folks understand what this broader construct that you've done, um, that you've created, uh, can offer and how it's useful uh, and, and uh, you know, has value and should be integrated into the classroom. Sure. So I'll start with my most recent example. It might not be the best one, but um, I'm teaching kids right now about a balloon-powered car. And inherently within that, there are tons of science concepts. So, you know, kinetic and potential energy could be addressed. Um, Newton's third law of motion could be addressed. Also, a simple wheel and axle, which is a simple machine system, could be addressed. Um, and those are all, those would all fall within NGSS, which is where most of those kit or curriculum programs are, you know, placing it. But the really cool thing is that it, it doesn't have to be limited or pigeonholed into those areas. So, so my work tries to broaden the view. I believe a teacher's primary role is to provide a context for student learning that allows kids to take that learning and then generalize it, right? You don't want a kid just to be able to do algebra in algebra class. You want a kid to be able to use that when they encounter a problem you know, in their, in their budget as an adult or, or what have you. So um, the really cool thing about this is the balloon-powered car, when I'm teaching it, could also be taught as um, a system. So we're going to look at, you know, the wheel and axle system across many types of vehicles and notice patterns within those and determine what parts are essential and look at design differences and why those design differences exist and then take that learning and apply it so you can build your own car that has hopefully a, a working um, wheel and axle system. So that's, so that's ultra cool, but the, but the other amazing, so that'd be like systems thinking, right? Mm -hmm. But the other really neat thing is that this could be any of the skills that I'm working on. So I already mentioned questioning. You could teach a whole lesson to kids making a balloon-powered car, but the language you're using now is not just wheel and axle or, you know, um, Newton's third law of motion. But you're saying things like, okay, so what, you know, what questions can you ask? What are, what are right there questions about the car? What parts do you notice? But then you could elevate their questioning and get them to start saying things like, what if, you know, we mm -hmm. did this or um, like what similarities do I see? So the, the student is being empowered to ask their own questions that guide inquiry rather than the teacher having that responsibility. And that's a really valuable school skill. Um, another thing I'm teaching kids through this exercise is establishing criteria. We're going to look at their cars when they're done and say like, okay, so like what makes a good car, you know? <laughs> And, sure. the, and with it being hands-on, kids are going to be like, well, <laughs> this is what makes a good car. And maybe my mind doesn't quite fit that yet, but that's where the iteration comes in. So you could do all these different lessons with the same activity, which allows for the teacher actually to have more time to iterate because that's a difficulty in schools. You don't have a lot of sure. time to keep doing the same thing because you're constantly trying to cram as much in. But if you use those iterations to teach different language and different skills, um, I think that's really powerful. Interesting. So um, 
it it are you is it, is it empowering uh, curiosity? Is that is that what's happening, or what's the um, what's the deeper skill that you're getting to asking questions? Yeah, I think the. I mean, I would hope there's not one skill in particular, but I think if, when I look at the skill sets, if they really span across most of the learning standards that exist in the school day, it's empowering kids to take control of their learning and see those okay. patterns because kids go through their school day. They go to the math room, they go to the science room, and nobody tells them that there's a secret that there are a lot of things in common, and if they can start to see those commonalities, it's going to be easier for them. Mm. Right? Like like another example I like to give is I was I was reading specialist or I am. So so like reading when you read a a, a text, it is a system. There are certain places where the author does certain things and they all have a function that contributes to the overall function of the text. Mm. And so if we can start to use language like, okay, what does this part do? And why did the author design it that way? Then when a kid comes to some really abstract work that if they're a struggling reader is already hard for them, they have something to draw on that they already have experience with. And so perhaps, my theory, they will be better able to access that system. Hmm. Um, well, that's interesting. So I want to I want to go back real quick to one one thing um, because it kind of po- it poses another question for me, which is we're talking about um, uh, you know kind of the design process, and we're talking about these you know, kind of maybe more esoteric things that like curiosity or making connections. Um, But schools and and learning outcomes are more aligned with understanding, with um, putting, uh, with being able to measure, being able to measure if something's working or not. Right. So what is, what is, how can you measure some of these things that you're working on. I, I understand that they align to learning outcomes and learning outcomes align to tests and tests are ways to measure those things. But what is the what is the thinking behind how these things align with with you know the, the that those measurements or, or some other measurement maybe? So the really crazy thing to me is that good lesson design starts with the end in mind. Because you have to know what you want your kids to be able to do, I think, if you want to figure out what you need to teach them that day. Okay. And so the the craziest thing to me when these make, making programs are introduced is that there is no assessment or maybe there is an assessment, but it's only focused on, you know, that programming idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I'm working on developing, I have like a beta, is a, an assessment rubric that again integrates all of these learning standards and skills that can provide teachers with a target, right, for learning, sure. but then also give them a tool that can help them measure student progress 
And on top of that, an, a, a rubric um, gives them language to give kids feedback. So if a kid isn't quite you know, getting all the way there, sometimes it's hard to know all the layers or all the skills that are embedded within that. So the rubric gives the teacher language to share with the students to provide sure. feedback. Sure, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, how do you measure whether a student is seeing connections and is becoming more curious? How do you, and that's a really, I mean, you know, um, slippery question to ask because in some ways, you know, those quanti- the, 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 the reasons why you need to quantify those things may or may not be arbitrary. But I, I, I want to know how, because this is the stuff that you're talking about that you value out of this. Right. And, and we're talking about how this aligns with it working in the classroom. And at some point, somebody's going to be asked, how do I derive, how, how do I measure these things in some way that will allow me to continue forward in, in implementing this, this, um, the, this framework? Right. Well, interestingly, there has been some pushback because I've heard teachers say, like, STEAM should just be fun or, okay. um, you know, STEAM is a special like it's, sure. it's um, like art or, you know, gym. Sure. Um, and so there is some argument for the fact that kids are already so measured throughout their day-to-day existence at school that they should just have a chance to like experiment and fail because part of making is actually about the failure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with the rubric that I made, not to just, but this is what I believe. Sure, um, I already put my disclaimer in there, so go ahead. Yeah, um, it's not based on, you know, a lot of rubrics that teachers use, and this is not a dig, are based on their product rubrics. So you, the kid gets like a project at home, they bring it in, the teacher says, yep, it's neat, yep, they use five vocabulary words, yes, you know, great job. But this, this rubric really attends and focuses in on the process that kids go through because realistically, not all kids will have a beautiful finished product. It might be like my cardboard car upstairs yeah. <laughs> is taped together and the straw is clamped because our kids were biting on it um, and my wheels aren't all the way straight but it's it's about what I learned about the 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 process but and and the and the product I just haven't had time to put that all in so the way I have my teacher workshop set up is that it's a workshop based classroom where the teacher is going to conference with the kid and getting to know where they're at in the process. Because really, if you're building student learning, um, you need to know what they're thinking and what they're doing, Mm -hmm. not just how it looks at the end. Right, so this scaffolds on top of what a lot of people talk about when they say, um, when they're they're, uh, um, referencing things like equitable learning. Right which is you're meeting the student where they're at rather than teaching the entire class. Right, the same thing. Uh, the same thing. Yeah, so Joe Bowler, who is um, like a mathematician and a guru, and she's awesome, um, mm. does some work, and she suggests that kids should have a low floor and a high ceiling, and I love that because that is really what it's about, right? Like all kids have access then to to learning, 
but how far the kid takes it is really dependent on them and perhaps the teacher scaffolding but then she also talks about having um right because that's a lot of the critique of something like um angela duckworth's grit is that it places a lot of the responsibility on the individual the the student really and it says that the students you know needs to persevere through Um, whether that's true or not i have no real opinion but kind of that's that seems like what you were alluding to there yeah like giving all kids a jumping off point that is but it's also the teacher's responsibility is what you're saying yes exactly so the teacher's job again is to frame it frame the situation so that and then joe bowler also talks about having multiple pathways so when you and i were in school um depending on the teacher you had you know you were taught like one way especially in math to do a problem yeah and forget about it if you didn't do it exactly that way right and what research is finding is that there are multiple pathways and there are books coming out like about number talks and how it's good for kids to see different ways of getting to the answers um because the most successful mathematicians are those that can think flexibly. Mm. So they don't, you know, because what happens is kids encounter a problem and they get stuck. And if they don't have a workaround or a different pathway to take, they literally have nowhere to go. But if they know other ways to get around that problem and think flexibly and take multiple pathways, even if they have like a favorite one, that's really empowering and that leads to true problem solvers not problem solvers that you know can do it when it's phrased exactly this way and within this context and sure. time frame. so this kind of jumps off into this um this idea of a camp or, or a steam camp that we that i mentioned at the beginning of this podcast because you know, ostensibly it's a place where this kind of learning would happen, right? Um, and so what's in, not interesting, what I want to know, um, it might be unfair to ask this, I'm going to ask it anyway. What I want to know is why is a STEAM camp necessary and why should this lear- the learning that's happening at a camp like that not be happening in the classroom at a at a school is this a supplementary kind of thing where it should have been happening but that the camp is is a way to to augment that or is it is it a different kind of or a deeper kind of or a whatever kind of learning that's happening in a camp and all in camps all around really that um that for one reason or another can't be done uh at a school yeah i hate to say it but i think for most schools and teachers, it really goes back to time. If, you're, if your kids are being tested on reading and math, and sometimes science, then what are you going to spend your most time, the most time on? Um, right. so, so do I think schools would be well served to take on this kind of programming? Yeah, I do. And I think some schools are doing it and doing it very well. And teachers are totally embracing it. And I've been inspired by what I see teachers doing um but it you know good things take time and it takes a lot of teacher knowledge to provide the most quality experience for kids um so I think that's where the steam camp comes in right so what is a what is a good 
steam camp um, teaching? What is a good, you know, if, I, if I'm looking, you know, if I'm listening to this and I'm looking around in my neighborhood and I'm trying to find a program to put my kid in, what does a good, what, what should a, what are the signals that I should be looking for in, um, in the way people are, you know, in the way that camp is presenting themselves in the way that, um, the, you know, the people who I might interview or talk, talk to who run the program are, are talking about, um, what, what are the things I should be looking for? Sure. So I think the truest sign of success is if the kid is excited when the thing is over, right? I mean, okay. who, who cares about if people agree with me or not? If, if it sparks the kid and their love for any, you know, type of learning outside of the classroom, then that is a huge success. Right, um, but we're talking about this in the context of a STEAM camp. So this isn't something yeah. where like, you know, this isn't like a... Well, I, I guess I'm just trying to differentiate because, yeah, you know, if I'm sending my kid to a, a STEAM camp, I don't want them to come home and, and they're excited about, you know... Well, so, something completely unrelated to that. I can't think of a good example right yeah, now. Yeah, but so what's the what's the thing that they're gonna be? You know, um, what do I want? What do I want to see uh, before I sign them up? What do I want to see in the program that signals that you know they're going to be learning these maker principles or these steam principles or whatever else? Sure. So this is my philosophy, but I think. A really quality program will not just focus on content, right? They're going to learn circuitry or robotics or whatever. Um, because my fear is that sometimes those programs can be a one-size-fits-all. Here's your robot kit. Put it together and you got it. You know, ta-da! as our son would say. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but but then like if you gave the kid robot parts later, could they really make a robot or not? Right? Um that's my so so I think uh so it should not just be content focused at least in my opinion. It should be something where the kid has a chance to explore and make and fail and try again and have more almost autonomy over the space they're working within mm -hmm. rather than because because ultimately those see and this is probably it those kits are product driven and i'm coming from the totally opposite direction and saying making is not about the product it's about the process and true mm. makers i think again real makers real makers <laughs> like me no right um right you know, it's, it's about the, the enjoyment of the process and moving through that, even if it means messing up and tearing something out or, okay. or what have you. Um, so, yeah, so because there's a lot of really cool content out there and there's a lot of, you know, stuff you can build from a kit that you get in the mail or whatever. Um, and we actually had talked about doing kits and I pushed back on that because kits are really good for kits can be really good for a beginner right? Like you've got to start somewhere. But if there is a trained professional in the room, I think we owe it to ourselves and to the children in front of us to elevate our work beyond that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, 
wrap this up. So, uh, Sarah Margulis, <laughs> my, uh, thank you for uh, joining the podcast and, and talking with us about um, making and, and how it aligns to learning. Um, where can people find you online uh, if they want to learn more about what you do? I have a website, Sarah at Margulis.com. That would be your email address probably, I would oh, assume, right? Shoot. What's my <laughs> URL? What's your website? Yeah. It's SarahMargulis.com. <laughs> this was podcast session number six of This Should Work with Sarah Margulis, Space Lab organizer, makerspace educator, and soon-to-be author of a new book about aligning maker standards with 21st century learning standards in schools. Um, also, uh, soon to be STEM camp organizer or STEAM camp organizer. Sorry. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Email, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is you're doing these days. And subscribe to us on any of your major podcast listening applications. Stay tuned next time for an interview with Jackie Moore, organizer of the Chicago Knights First Robotics Program organizer of Chicago Southside Mini Maker Fair and all-around awesome person as we talk about the role of FIRST Robotics in education, the importance of community representation in the maker movement, and how does play or whimsy prepare someone to learn. That and much more in our next episode of This Should Work. Thanks again. <laughs>